Hey everyone, we want to welcome you to the Floater Founder Podcast. This is a Toronto-based podcast featuring local founders across all markets. We are your hosts, Samantha Lloyd and Lyson Casey. We are going to be bringing you interviews with exciting and hardworking founders. They will be sharing their experience creating and leading a company. Thanks for listening. Hi, you're here with Samantha Lloyd of Floater Founder. I'm also here with Lyson Casey, my co-host. Hey everyone. And I'm also here with Nadim Nathu, the founder, co-founder, sorry, of uh, the Knowledge Society. Good to be here. Awesome. So tell us, what is the Knowledge Society? So the easy way to describe TKS is we're building super-powered young people to solve really important problems in the world. And we use exponential technologies like AI, quantum computing, nanotech, gene editing, all this fun stuff to be able to do that. The analogy that I use, and I think... Um, it'll be relatable for people who maybe listen to founders podcasts is, you know, like Y Combinator and Techstars, some of these startup accelerators, their mission is to build unicorn companies, right? Companies that are billion dollar companies in less than 10 years. Uh, Our mission is to build unicorn people, people who impact billions far earlier on in their life. And if you think about like someone who wants to be an Olympic level swimmer, right? You don't turn 22 and go, hmm, I feel like competing for the Olympics next year, right? (laughs) You start young and you get the best trainers and you train. And I don't care if you have one leg. If you invest 10,000 hours into swimming, you will be a better swimmer. But what about young people who want to be Olympic level, quote unquote, CEOs, innovator, thought thought leaders, researchers? What institution do they go to to get those 10,000 hours? Right now it's life, but it's super unstructured. There's a lot of serendipity. And we just wanted to figure out a way where we can quote unquote, productize this, package this in a way that we don't have to rely on serendipity. We don't have to rely on luck, right? How can we structure that serendipity? Cool. And what would you say are some qualities in people that uh, differentiate the Olympic level uh, performers versus like house league? There's three things that we look at when we evaluate who would be the right fit for the program. And I like to think that we're a people development organization versus a uh, filtering organization. So like YC, Y Combinator is a filtering organization. Universities are filtering organizations. Companies even, when especially when you join an entry role, they're filtering organizations. School is supposed to be a people development organization, um, but I would argue that it's very limited in its scope. And so what we do is we focus on curiosity. So we don't want someone ever since who is nine years old who has wanted to be a doctor and that's all they ever wanted to be, right? We want people who love learning, understand they don't know what they don't know. Just want to get a better understanding of the world. The second thing we look for is the ability to take initiative uh, or strong desire to learn. So if a young person's in an interview with me and they say they're interested in space tech, but they can't hold a five minute conversation with me about it, they're probably not the right fit because all you had to do is like YouTube it or Google it. The information's there, are you trying? And then the last thing we look for is just, are you willing to put in the work? Like, honestly, I don't know if some kids are going to be listening to this, but we scare the crap out of the kids in the interview. And if they still want to do it, that's probably a good sign. (laughs) Um, And then, of course, there's a certain level of intellectual horsepower that goes along with it. But it's really just about, are you willing to learn? Do you have this growth mindset? And will you put in the work? Right? That's awesome. And what kind of um, inspired this from the start? What inspired both of you to launch this? So we've had some really interesting experiences I would say growing up, so, I mean, we obviously went to university, we both went to Western, but most of our experiences came outside of the classroom. So I spent some time with Muhammad Yunus, who is a Nobel Peace Prize winner, who's the grandfather of microfinance in Bangladesh, um, working with him on how to increase repayment rates. And this was when I was like 19 years old. And that was one of the most important experiences of my life, actually living in Bangladesh for two months. 
Um, I was in Honduras building mobility aids for the physically disabled in rural Honduras. I was in Tajikistan um, helping build early childhood development centers. A lot of people don't even know what Tajikistan is or haven't heard of it, but it's in Central Asia. Or in Kyrgyzstan helping build a quarter billion dollar university to compete with the Harvards and IITs of the world. Um, and all of this, it wasn't, it wasn't like these were opportunities that were available. These were things that we just wanted to do to be interesting and out of our own volition and curiosity. I took time off to do things that I was really excited about. Um, got into blockchain fairly early on, moved down to the valley. My brother started an enterprise security company, so he got acquired by Box, Box.com, which is a multi-billion dollar company down in the valley, and he started leading their AI and machine learning team. So at this point, you know, we're fairly young in our lives. We're in Silicon Valley. We're waking up to self-driving cars every single day. Our friends are starting billion-dollar companies. Uh, we've been fortunate enough to not have uh, our finances be now the number one thing that's driving us um, relatively, uh, some relative success early on in life there. But we asked ourselves a really important question we thought at the time is, what if we had 10 billion bucks in the bank? How would we spend our time? And a lot of people, when I ask them this question, they don't really have an answer. Um, and some people say that they would invest in other people. But what was interesting is there were three problems that we wanted to solve. And they were pretty immediate that came to mind. The first was food production. So like the impossible food, soylents, vertical farming, they're all trying to solve this in different ways. So to give you know the listeners here an analogy is if you fed a cow 100 pounds of protein, they only retain three pounds of protein. So that's a 3% technology. Like where in the world would we ever accept a 3% technology, right? It just wouldn't happen. But we're doing it every single day today. Uh, it's completely broken. You know, 19,000 bottles of water to make one pound of beef, all this stuff. But I like meat, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, so, yeah. and so, you know, how can we actually create a way that's disruptive or transformative to the current way um, that we're, you know, growing livestock or agriculture versus just being incremental with our decisions? So that's one. The second one was affordable housing. Uh, again, there's tons of things that you can do to double click into there that make it very clear that this is one of the most important problems in the world. Uh, and then the third was access to diagnostics and drugs. So we're like, okay, say we dedicate the rest of our lives to one of these problems and completely knock it out of the park. Like it doesn't exist anymore. What about these hundreds of other problems that are impacting billions of people? Like our current strategy as a civilization is to cross our fingers, hold our breath and hope that someone comes along to solve these problems. That's a pretty crazy strategy. Yeah. Like, like we just hope yeah. for another Elon Musk yeah. to come, yeah. right? And, and so for us, um, we viewed that as an infrastructure problem. And we're like, hey, let's, let's focus on this. Like, how can we completely rethink the way young people learn and develop, give them the knowledge, skills, mindsets, and networks so that they can intentionally solve um, these, you know, hundreds of other problems in the world? And what I find is that, especially when we were down in the valley and just got a better understanding of the world, the first is that there's not enough smart people in the world working on hard problems, partly because there's so many problems in the world that need to be worked on. And then the other thing is, is that there's a lot of people who are so smart, but working on things that they weren't exactly excited about and not doing with a lot of intention. Um, so like people working on like Uber for bartenders is the analogy that I use, right? You have like wicked smart people, but they're like, oh man, I need to solve this like on-demand bartender problem. It's like, no, you don't. And then the second is, I don't think we're doing a good job mining the resource of human potential. Mm -hmm. Like if human potential is our most valuable resource, it's not gold, it's not oil, but we have the most sophisticated tools to get gold and oil out of the ground, but it still feels like we're using pickaxes on a mountain to mine these like musks, zucks, gates, like whoever name you wanted to drop. So we're like, okay, these are two fundamental things that we just needed to kind of rethink. And if we solve and if we address these two problems, I think we'll just have 
more people, you know, addressing things that we think are important and creating just a better world that we want to live in. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the the problem with uh, technology, especially cutting edge technology, a lot of time is not just the development of it is also providing access to everyone in the world. Yeah. So a lot of times with vaccines or medical technology, something will exist, but you there's still islands where people are dying from the plague. So what, how would you feel is the best way to, to ensure that uh, even the poorest people in the world get access to uh, the latest technology? Well, so that's interesting because that's a scalability of infrastructure problem. And we, that still exists today in large parts of the world. So like the Internet, for example, billion and a half people, last time I checked, don't have access to the Internet. The Internet is like water now. It's like mm-hmm. a utility, oh, it's, yeah. right? Uh, but we don't kind of treat it the same way. Uh, and, and ideally, we would, we would want to provide internet to all these people but it's a challenge like it's it's a technological challenge that we need to overcome and we of course have 3g and 4g and you know we're we're trying to do things there's uh, facebook's internet.org that launched aquila uh, to try and solve that problem to you know beam down internet from a drone to you know a, a large part of a subcontinent east africa that didn't work i think they recently folded that project but they're still trying to do some other things to tackle that problem um, there's obviously Google is trying to do the same thing. And you know what? It's partly selfish because that's the way they grow if they get more people access to the internet. But I think that's a good thing to have your incentives tied to that. Um, but then there's other companies in the world that are completely rethinking the way this is done. And so to answer your question more succinctly is most of the time there are just technological challenges and it's no different than um, really a scalability challenge or anything like that is you just need more smart people and more of the right people working on the problem right it's also it's also uh, about making sure that the problem is solvable in an economically feasible way oh, yeah otherwise it becomes a charity and it's a whole different uh whole different ball game yeah that that's that's a good point and what i've also come to realize is that most things people work on need to have an economic incentive as well as an emotional incentive yeah like if you're just emotionally incentivized by something um, it's going to be very difficult to really scale this thing and solve the problem because it's not a one-person show. You need other people to work with you. And then if you're just economically incentive, you're not going to solve a lot of these problems that need to be solved because, you know, to use drugs as an example, your economic incentive is like people, there, there's a, almost a perfect inelasticity of demand for some of these drugs. So you can virtually charge as, as much as you want. And so there has to be an emotional and economic incentive to do these things. And I think part of that is just training wisdom in people we don't really have a good way to train wisdom yeah. um what's interesting is i i asked some of my kids the other day like tks kids a couple couple months ago i was like do you think wisdom is good like does it have a pun it's not a trick question they're like looking at me like should i you know <laughs> uh and like does it have a positive connotation like would you rather have less wisdom than more wisdom they're like no i, I think wisdom is good i was like okay i was like what do you think is wisdom what does wisdom mean to you like define the word struggle to define it and i think most people would struggle to define it like they just it's a good thing yeah i kind of know it has something to do with maybe like you know, i always knowledge think of or, someone who's like wise beyond their years that's what i end up defaulting to right. <laughs> I do, it's like knowledge from gained from experience is what i yeah so for me uh the way i define wisdom is the thoughtful implication of knowledge plus experience so like knowledge plus experience is data and then the thoughtful implication of that, I think, is wisdom. And so I think you can train that if you are very good at being thoughtful and you can make implications. You're always asking yourself the so what. They get more knowledge and experience and you'll become more wise. Yeah. If you 
um, have a lot of knowledge and experience, then start training mindfulness and the thoughtful implication part. And you can do that. And there's different ways that we can. I just don't think we're being very intentional about some of these things. And so, I mean, this is, goes back to why we started TKS is eventually TKS is going to be, you know, in every major city around the world and ideally um, accessible to most people around the world where we're able to institutionalize this training of wisdom uh, because that's the only way we think that we can eventually solve these you know, yeah. really hard problems. And so speaking of um, the kids, can you talk about kind of the application process, what happens when they're part of the Knowledge Society and things like that? Yeah, a lot of people think that we get these like genius, super-powered kids already before they come into TKS, but they're actually just regular kids. Like We don't expect a 13-year-old to know anything about genomics or AI. Um, so they apply to the program, again, just because they're curious, they're ambitious, and you know they're, they're committed to the program. Um, and they go through an interview process. And then when they get in, uh, we expose them to all of these different things. Like someone's in the interview process and I'm like, and they say something like, I'm really passionate. By the way, like the P word is a big word. Like I don't think a <laughs> yeah. lot of people know the difference between like interest and passion. Like passion is on a different level. But they're like, you know, I'm really passionate about stem cells or I'm really passionate about finance, like something like that. And it's like, okay, do you know what quantum computing is? No. Do you know what AI is? No. Do you know what blockchain is? No. Do you know what goes into hardware? building? Like, no. It's like, well, then it's impossible for you to even become passionate about that. Yeah. Right? So there's a lot of things that these young people uh, kind of have in their, in their mind that's very self-limiting. And the first part of getting over that self-limiting mindset is just getting exposure. So the first part of the program is getting tons of exposure. Then we encourage them to go deep into a particular topic. So how can you become a young thought leader, a thought expert in, in a short amount of time? In like two, three months. And it's very much project-based learning. So they're like, and, and it's hard. Like we have very high standards and, and that's the point. It's like, you know, you're going to spend a month like trying to learn this calculus and you're like a 14-year-old kid and you're learning calculus and linear algebra and you, you get to a point where you hit a wall. But then part of our responsibility is encourage you and help you figure out how to get over that wall. And once you get over that wall, you're a completely different person, right? So it's getting over the wall, building these projects. Um, that's called a focus. And they do that for probably twice throughout the year. And then there's a, a, a place in the process called Innovate, which is the intersection of two focus areas. So for example, it's impossible, it, it'd be very unrealistic to expect that a young person would be an expert in AI in like three months. Like there's a lot of people working in, on AI in the world, maybe not as much as finance, for example, but you know, like for a, for a couple of years, there's been people working on this. But it is not unrealistic to think that someone might be able to get to be a global thought leader um, or or young expert in the intersection of like AI and genomics. There's a handful of people, <clears throat> excuse me, in the world that are working on the intersections of different technologies or like quantum computing and blockchain, right? And so now, once you've gone deep into a lot of these different topics, you can start thinking about different possibilities that most people, even experts in AI, can't really think about because they don't know what like quantum machine learning is. Like one of our students was working on uh, quantum computing, then went into focus in machine learning. This was at the time where the word quantum machine learning just started to come out. He was like one of the kids who was working on that and, and before we even heard QML, right? Um, so like, I'll give you a, a specific example. Ananya, she joined our program when she was 14 years old. Really got excited about genomics. Got her into a lab, casually was able to cure muscular dystrophy in mice 
for the first time ever. That's wow. amazing. Globally uh, <laughs> wow. with our team. And now they're, I think they're moving on to human trials. Then she's like, you know what, as a part of the TKS process, moves on to another focus. So she goes deep into blockchain. From her previous genomics experience, she realizes that there wasn't a good way to share genomics data. It's our most personal information. If you think about the Cambridge Analytica scandal, mm-hmm. that's like where you live and mm-hmm. you know your, your pictures. But this is literally your most personal information. Your like someone future can, diseases. Yeah. Exactly. Like someone can enact biological warfare on you yeah. if you want, like one day, maybe. Um, so she built a way to share genomics data on the blockchain. Um, and now she's a brain-computer interface developer figuring out a way to use... Cool. Um, to, to control prosthetic limbs with her mind and electric cars and music and now combining that with her AI focus, which is what she's on right now, right? So it's like now she's building this breath, this tea, right? This breath of knowledge and gone deep into a couple of these things and now she can imagine things that just most other people couldn't do. And she's had such a huge impact on such a young age too. Like, exactly. And, and there's tons of examples like that. There's yeah. tons, which is really cool. That is amazing. I was going to ask you like to talk about students who've done something cool, um, but I'm going to guess like every student here has a really interesting story. Are there others like hers that have really stood out? Yeah, I'll, I'll mention a couple others. So there was this one student who joined the program who was very introverted. Um, again, didn't really know what the possibilities were and through TKS got really excited about neuroscience and medical imaging and realized that medical imaging actually hasn't advanced in the last couple of years. And so he started going really deep into MRIs and he realized, so MRIs is uh, magnetic resonance imaging. And he realized that the way we currently do MRIs in a very simplistic fashion um, or an explanation is resonating protons in liquid. And that's what pushes kind of the, um, the water to the walls in our brain. That's what allows us to kind of image different parts of our brain. So he was just like, well, instead of resonating protons, what if we can resonate something that's smaller? like electrons or ions. Like it started from a very simple idea because we couldn't get a very granular uh, reading of um, our, of our brain, like from a neuron level. So he started working on that. He was able to achieve pretty good signal. He was working in the hospitals, whatever. But he realized that the FDA process would be a super long time, like 10 yeah. years. Um, but the technology that he started building, he realized that it could be applied to a device um, to non-invasively detect metabolites, like blood glucose and cholesterol levels. So now he's built this device that can non-invasively measure blood glucose and cholesterol levels without even penetrating the skin. Like what a casual pivot, right? From, you know, reinventing MRIs to kind of doing non-invasive blood testing. Um, So that's one example. I'll share with you one more. There was one student who joined the program at 13, didn't even know what the words virtual and augmented reality was. Fast forward two years, was recently named one of the top 10 VR influencers in the world, building an augmented reality um, wayfinding application for indoor navigation. Google is probably the leading company that's working on this right now, um, and they haven't been able to crack it. And he's testing this at a couple different companies right now, and it works without the use of beacons. So he's just using computer vision and augmented reality to do this. Wow. Right? And again, there's like tons more like this, but that's the super awesome thing to see is that you can actually go through this process and dramatically accelerate your personal development. That is so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So what would you say most young founders are doing wrong? I would say two things. And it's not, the first isn't necessarily quote unquote wrong. I just think it's suboptimal. Um, The ambition seems to be fairly low. Most, I think there's a lot of founders that are very smart. Um, but not really applying what they're doing to something that's big and something that's meaningful. Like if you think about what a company is, a company is a uh, organized group of people working towards a problem or mission. 
A great company is an extremely well-organized group of really smart people working towards a high-value mission. And I mean that by like market size. So even if you like are so smart and you crack the first two things, if you're just working on a small problem or something that people actually like it's not as meaningful, um, not like uh, empathetically meaningful, like actually like market size and dollars wise meaningful to the world, um, you're probably going to find it hard to monetize and scale your business. That's number one. And number two is fitting solutions to problems rather than finding problems or opportunities and then building for those. Like a lot of uh, young founders, I think, have these ideas of things that they want to do, but haven't really pressure tested their assumptions. And they get really excited about things. And it's kind of like chasing the cute dog, right? And you just know what's going to work. And it's almost this fear that if you test your assumption, you know it's not going to work, but you still really want to do it. Um, which, you know, is a is this is the reason why second-time founders are... Um, more quote-unquote valuable to VCs and others than first-time founders is because you kind of go through that journey and you learn what it actually means to solve a problem or address an opportunity and start a company. But those are the two biggest things that I'm seeing, especially in Canada. Mm-hmm. Cool. And, yeah, you're talking uh, about a lot of different areas and problems that there are to solve. Um, what would you say are the most uh, important, meaningful problems that are going to be solved in the next year, in the next five years, and maybe in the next 10 years? Like, Which problems are we really going to crack that are going to ch- change humanity? One of the mental models that I use is 30 years from now, what are we going to look back on and think is archaic? So one is I think we're going to look back and be like, I can't believe we let people drive in death machines yeah. all the time, <laughs> yeah. right? And we didn't have this like kind of autonomous vehicle infrastructure back then. We, um, so that's one. I think for education, we're going to look back and be like, why did people have to just learn with people their age? Uh, only learn math for the same amount of time that they can learn English. You can only learn fractions at grade seven or whatever. And then at grade eight, like it, it's going to be like, you know, why did we do that? I think food is going to be another one. But I think... There's going to be some really powerful advancements in things like disease and human longevity. Like a lot of people don't understand uh, aging is a disease, but that's good news because diseases can be treated, right? And so there's like Peter Diamandis who has uh, invested and in, in co-founded a company called Cellularity that's figuring out a way to dramatically improve human longevity. And um, he thinks, Peter recently said that he thinks he'll live to around 160 given what he knows. Um, so that's one. Uh, and aging also causes a bunch of other diseases like cancer. So as an example, in the last 50 years, we've invested probably a trillion dollars in cancer research. Um, and by the way, every year we spend 80 billion, this is in North America, it might actually be in the US, 80 billion on cancer treatments and 8 billion on cancer research. But mortality rates after stage three and four haven't actually gone down significantly, significantly in the past you know, uh, 50 years. But if you can detect cancer at stage one and stage two, um, you actually have a far better chance of surviving. So detection is the key and diagnosing is the key and not necessarily our treatment for stage three and stage four. And so now there's something called um, that researchers are looking into and one of, one of our kids is actually looking into called liquid biopsy. Whereas, you know, when you go to the doctor and you get a blood test and you can test for a lot of these different things like thalassemia, HIV, whatever. What if one of those things you could test for is cancer? Right. And that's starting to happen. So I think most of these really important problems that like if you just go out on the street and ask people. And by the way, I should say this. If you go out on the street and you ask someone, you know, what are the top 10 problems that we face as humanity? People might say hunger. People might say poverty. They might say climate change, disease, whatever. 
But those aren't problems. Those are outcomes. Mm -hmm. People are hungry. People are poor. The climate is changing. Why are people hungry? Why are people poor? Why is the climate changing? If you could solve, those are the problems. And if you could solve those, then you help alleviate the outcomes. And so I think a lot of those outcomes that we see that are in our top priorities will technologically have the ability to solve. But again, it comes down to just having more people to solve these problems. Can I say one more thing? Of course. So Vinod Khosa, he's the founder of Sun Microsystems. Pretty much the reason why we have like phones and computers and all that stuff that we have today. Um, Facebook's campus is actually in the Sun Microsystems old old office. Um, He's like... In my opinion, Bill Gates' status in terms of walking into like any tech organization, he, uh, he's awesome. He recently had an interview with Sam Altman uh, at y- of, of YC, and he says, Vinod Khosla says how he did this exercise where he tried to break down GDP and besides government spending and see if there was a way that he could increase each of those components by 100x. And he actually has ideas to increase every component of GDP by 100x in a bunch of different industries. And he wrote like a 30-page manifesto or something like that. Um, and he breaks down like manufacturing, education, health, whatever. And some are some ideas are better than others. But the point is, he's actually thought about it and there's probably going to be some iteration. And what he said is, but what I'm lacking is the people to do it. Like I have, we have the money, the capital is there, right? We have the ways to approach it and at least the methods to iterate. But you got to have the people to actually want to execute on it. So again, that goes back to TKS. Like, why are we doing this? We're, just, we're trying to build these unicorn people to actually do that. That's great. That's really great. So um, to circle back to more about you and um, your experience leading this company, uh, obviously it seems like it's been really rewarding and fulfilling. And uh, how has it been working with your brother? It's been like way better than I think most people <laughs> expect. Uh, we trust each other a lot. Yep. Uh, we can be like ultra candid. Like if I do something stupid, you can be like, that was stupid. <laughs> and I don't have to defend myself. And I can just be like, yep. But there's no ego about it. And you just learned and you kind of iterate. Um, what's really good is once we separated kind of our responsibilities, like there's that ultimate trust going back to it, right? Where he just like completely nails something and he can trust that I, I, I'm going to nail my thing. And if I need help, I'm going to come to him and he's going to come to me. Um, and I think we're, we think very similarly in a lot of ways, but also very differently in a ton of ways. And it took me actually until working together that I realized this. Mm-hmm. Like I thought we were just like pretty similar growing up, um, especially after university. <clears throat> but I realized that uh, like, yeah, he might be a little bit more introverted and I'm a little bit more extroverted. And, you know, he likes reading a lot and he's very detail oriented, whereas I'm more like I'm more pie in the sky. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's been it's been super That's great working great. with him. If you could pick AI, only want to work on AI, aerospace, so like the space industry or quantum computing, uh, and you could only work pick on one of them to work in, which one would you pick and why? So quantum computing from a technological perspective, I'm the most excited about because if you think about actually how it works, and I don't know how many listeners actually know how it works, classical computing has transistors and they have ones and zeros and these are bits. And like if you look at a picture on your computer screen, it's just a bunch of ones and zeros representing an image. Quantum computer takes a particle in nature, like an electron, even a photon, and it uses quantum mechanic funkiness to be a, and this is a very simplistic explanation, um, to be a one and zero at the same time, to be able to exponentially uh, 
compute versus our current our, our classical systems. Who thought about that that idea? Richard Feynman, probably, right? Yeah. Uh, it's how, one of those people. How the universe computes. So. Yeah, exactly. So to be able to harness that and use it to compute, I think is like super crazy and awesome. I don't know if I'm smart enough to work on that problem. And so from a process of elimination, it would probably be AI, um, mostly because I see the most immediate applications and partly because in the next five years, there's going to be no such thing as AI startups. Like there's just going to be startups. Like everything is going to use AI. And so that's almost like saying, would you ever want to work on like an internet company? It was like every company (laughs) uses it, right? And so to kind of use that next oil um, would be really interesting. Very cool. And um, to kind of uh, uh, close it out, um, for TKS, what's next? You guys are in a bunch of cities. Uh, What are your upcoming plans? So we're expanding to New York, Boston, Ottawa, and Vegas, which is super exciting. Yeah. Vegas is like a super random story. Uh, Tony Shea, who's the CEO and founder of Zappos, just loved what we were doing. He's like, literally, what can I do to bring you down this year? And I was like, well, you know, we want to provide financial aid to all these kids, and we need a space to run the program out of. We need a city director, and like, we need to get applications. It's too much work. He's like, you can use our space. We'll pay for the city director. We'll subsidize all your kids. And will take 10% of this woman's you know time to generate applications for you awesome. and I was like okay I guess we're coming <laughs> to Vegas, Vegas. <laughs> uh, so that's exciting but in the next couple of years we're also testing a foundations program this year piloting it out for 9 to 12 years old so not focused as much on exponential technologies but problem solving confidence um, rigor networks like all that stuff and there is going to be a component of these exponential technologies but it's not going to be the same level of expectation obviously you're nine Mm -hmm. years old to go super deep into something Uh, but who knows maybe they'll surprise us so those are the things that are happening in the immediate term Um, in the next five years every major city in North America and in seven every major city around the world Um, but again the goal is to completely rethink the way young people learn and develop globally so not just like Elon Musk when he built the Roadster you know, his goal was to never just build a $150,000 EV. It's like, how can I make a $10,000 EV and make money off the infrastructure? So this is our roadster. But eventually, how can we, you know, from early childhood education all the way to when people add value to society, how can we streamline that process and, and personalize it and optimize it for the way people develop in general? Um, thinking about how we can align incentives. And so one way that we're doing that is we're actually building a fund um, probably in the next year or two, a small, maybe five, $10 million fund to start investing in these young people. Um, and so now for us, when we think about financial aid, for example, the $3,000 of financial aid that we give to someone, even if there's a 1% chance that they raise money and then a 1% chance that they hit and they start something really meaningful, um, that $3,000 is almost inconsequential. Uh, just about how we can align TKS to incentives. Very cool. Cool. And kind of the last question is, is there a question that we didn't ask you that you wish we did? So I, this is something that I've been thinking about for a while and something I noticed in the last two years of my life. So I'm obviously still fairly young and I'm growing in my mental models of life and are, are evolving. But one thing that I deeply realized is how important it is to take risks. And going back to Vinod Khosla, he says this one quote, the consequence of mitigating risk makes the prospect of success inconsequential so the consequence of mitigating risk makes the prospect of success inconsequential so say you have like your status quo bar and below that is risk and above that is reward 
If you're always trying to mitigate, mitigate, mitigate towards the status quo bar, then the amount of success that you could possibly have is only a little bit above the status quo bar. You can't expect to take a little bit of risk and have a high reward. That's not how it works. But here's life's biggest secret. Perceived risk is actually far greater than actual risk, but reward is directly proportional to perceived risk. So if you actually have the courage to take the risk over and over again in the long run, you'll just take advantage of life's greatest arbitrage opportunity and you'll come out the other side and win. One of my friends, he works at a major bank, doesn't really enjoy what he's doing there. Uh, he's, you know, complains sometimes. And I asked him, I'm like, man, why don't you just leave? Like, what do you want? Like, wh where do you want to work? He's like, I'd love to work for the MLSC, like Major League Sports and Entertainment. Um, and he's like, oh, yeah, I'm, I might get promoted soon. This always comes up with reasons. And I was like, look, do you have enough money to survive for six months? He's like, yeah. I was like, what if you quit soon, left soon, and spent six months relentlessly trying to get this job, right? And it doesn't work for some reason. Like, they're hiring our friends work there. I think you can get, but say it doesn't work. And you run out of money. Then what would you do? He's like, probably get a job back here. So I'm like, you're literally living your worst case scenario on purpose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How weird is that, right? And so probably just thinking about and people reflecting like, am I living my worst case scenario on purpose? And what are some risks I can actually try and take to test the waters? Um, and I've always been inherently... Uh, more risks like seeking and, and had a higher appetite for risk but I didn't really understand why I was like is that dumb you know but I think I just got a better understanding of the world and I realized that no it's actually just a math problem and that's why it's been working out in my favor because if you just do the math it you know it actually works out it's worthwhile all right so now we're gonna go into the rapid fire question sweet um, I'll ask a few and then hand it over to you so what is your favorite thing about Toronto I think the people Honestly, like I, so I'm from Calgary and I spent the last, you know, couple of years in Toronto and I've, I've been to over 30 countries and maybe the last five years. And I don't think I'm biased because I mentioned I'm not from here, but Toronto is one of my favorite cities in the world, yeah. right? Like rivaling like Sydney and Tokyo. Yeah. And um, what is your favorite street in Toronto? Probably Ossington. Yeah. That's a yeah. cool one. Like, yeah. like the more hipster vibes. Yeah. Hipster, for, not for long. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> And um, to switch it up, how do you start your day? I do um, Sam Harris uh, mindful meditation. So waking up with Sam Harris, around 10 minutes. Um, and I try and spend half an hour every morning thinking, like just creating time to think rather than like do, do, do. All right. And then so what's your go-to morning coffee, tea, beverage? Yeah, it's just actually just water. It's super just boring. Water. Yeah, sometimes I don't even <laughs> hydrate. Like Jen, who runs partnerships for us, she calls me a camel because like I just don't drink liquid. <laughs> until... I just store it. Yeah, I'm just like whatever. <laughs> and um, so, what's your favorite thing to do to relax? I think uh, so. I have a sauna and steam room in my building and hot tub. And I was gonna say like nothing, but that actually is super relaxing for me. Like I, I'm I'm a pretty relaxed individual in general. Like working for me is therapeutic, and I like. Um, running TKS and just learning about stuff, but saunas for sure. Awesome. How about the best place you've traveled to? That one's tough. I'd probably say either Mombasa, Tokyo, or Sydney. Very cool. And um, would you live anywhere else in the world? Yeah, I probably would live in either Sydney. If I could transport all my friends to Sydney, Yeah, I could live there. <laughs> um, or even Mombasa. Yeah, Very different cool. places there.
And um, who was your favorite teacher? My favorite teacher, I would say it was this guy, Mr. Cantrell. He was my calculus teacher, and it sucked that it was so late. He was in grade 12. Yeah. Um, but he would always... So he had this thing where if you got 100% on an exam, he would just give you your mark back, and you would just shake your hand. Like, he wouldn't say <laughs> anything. And so I always wanted to get... The handshake. the handshake and if I didn't get it I'd be like but like when he just got when he gave it to me I just felt so good and uh, he'd do this thing where you walk by each other in the hall sometimes it was weird like seeing your teacher multiple times in the day because like what do you do give that weird like smirk or something <laughs> and he would just count like he'd just be like one <laughs> two this is like very quirky and weird and he'd always like Funny. drop like philosophy in, yeah. in class like I don't know he's just a I like interesting people he's an interesting guy yeah that's cool. awesome uh, what's the, the your favorite app on your phone? Probably Uber. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the last TV show you binged? Billions. Oh, cool, yeah, cool. Yeah, nice. I really like Billions. I know the new season's out, but I, yeah, I haven't seen the new season yeah, me, either. Me either. I wait for it to finish, and then I'm gonna watch it all. Yeah. So another show that's got a uh, we were just, we just finished actually a, a Billions vibe. It's called Succession. Oh, cool. It's also so it's HBO. also an HBO yeah. show. It's really good. Nice. Recommend. We but just that was the last show we binged. <laughs> I highly recommend Spartacus, and it, it started off low budget, but it's like, man, this the story is awesome, the acting is amazing. It's like, in my opinion, people are gonna hate this. I think it's a better Game of Thrones. Oh. Yeah, let's go. Shots fired. Shots, Shots fired. fired. <laughs> what is the the last movie you watched? This is gonna be old, but I think it was Bohemian Rhapsody. What is the number one skill that you need to rely on to succeed? I think problem solving. Mm-hmm. And that is a skill. And that's something that can be trained. A lot of people just don't spend time on it. But yeah, in, in today's age, like a lot of people talk about IQ and yeah. EQ. But there's this new thing um, called uh, Amin Tufani's kind of putting a lot more attention to this. He's a Singularity University faculty called AQ. It's your adaptability quotient. Because um, like 200 years ago versus 150 years ago, the world didn't change yeah. that much. Uh, whereas now, like what was true 10 years ago isn't true today and it's not going to be true in the next 10 years. And so yeah. I think problem solving is the, the thing that we're going to need to be adaptable. And it's also one of the skills that AI is not the best at. Yeah. You know? Yet. So, yeah. So. Yeah. But, yeah. but, but, I mean, we are having, you know, things like AlphaGo and AlphaGo Zero that are like, like game, video games is where you need to problem solve pretty much the most yeah. and, you know, fractions of the second. And they're beating some of the best players in the world. So that's I think true. we're going to get there. Yeah. And uh, what, what is the, the one skill that's uh, always worth outsourcing? I don't know if it's always worth outsourcing, but I think we're going to get to a world where, and these are two very different things, but I think it applies to sales and marketing, um, especially in this a lot more shared economy and kind of like freedom lifestyle economy and, and, and people working remotely. Um, you're going to have some really smart people who can do like 10x more than sales organizations because of different tools and stuff like that. And they're some of the best people in the world who can do it. Um, who could probably do it for multiple organizations at a time. So, yeah. Cool. And uh, what's your favorite social media platform? Yeah, like I, I'm the worst. I don't use Instagram. Like I, I have Snapchat, but I have like five people on my like story. So if I go somewhere interesting, I just do that. Uh, I deleted Facebook off my phone. Does YouTube count? Yeah. yeah, I like yeah. YouTube. I would yeah. yeah, I'm not like social media on it. I watch yeah. videos, but yeah, yeah, YouTube's my jam. And um, who is the coolest person you've ever met? Like famous people that people would know. Just people that you like had a really good experience. Yeah, they, like be cool to you or yeah. cool to other people. Doesn't yeah. Yeah, I met the Soylent guys. Uh, so like Rob Reinhardt and yeah. um, the COO 
years ago and this is when like Soylent was just starting to happen and I just really like the story of how he was living off Soylent for I think it was like at that time two years uh, and it was like yeah you're putting your money where your mouth is mm-hmm. and in this case like you know your food uh, so that was interesting met the CMO of Snapchat fairly early on very smart uh, obviously got to be close friends with Tony Shea uh, or get to know him super well over the last uh, couple months, helping you know bring TKS down and Zappos bringing TKS down to Vegas. We were at Tom Bilia's house just hanging out a couple weeks ago who founded uh, Impact Theory and Quest Nutrition. Um, I think sold it for like 600 or 800 million, something like that. But he's just overall like super awesome guy. And um, who is the best boss that you've ever had? This is a good one. I'm going to say this guy, his name's Kareem Thomas. He works at McKinsey. Uh, out of Toronto and it was my second project at McKinsey first of all so sharp the ultimate work ethic um, tried to shield me from a lot of stuff that like I like the project was so good for me but now that I think back like there was tons of stress uh, on him and he did a lot uh, to give me opportunities to like learn and grow like when he didn't really have to do that super simple too like wasn't really complaining about a lot of stuff it was just like man learned a lot wasn't stressful he was seemed like a good guy. That's awesome. Yeah. That's great. And for the final one, what was your very first job? My very first job was actually in management consulting. Yeah, I did a lot of uh, volunteering work and stuff before that. Again, there was like this always deep level of service. I was part of the Next 36 and like the very first cohort, like what is it, like eight, nine years ago now. Um, so even in like first year, second year, even when I was younger, I was always doing that stuff. And then the first time was when I was like, okay, I'm in business school. Let's just see if my, my intention behind doing it was I knew I wasn't going to like corporate. So I wanted to do it at the best place possible that I thought was at the time. Um, and I was like, I, I know I'm going to hate it, but might as well do it. So I won't have like any regrets. And so, yeah, yeah. very cool. cool. Well, thank you so, so much for letting us come into your space here at WeWork and um, interviewing you. It's been great. Very cool. insightful. Lots of fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah thanks for Thank you me. so much. It was, uh, it was great. Awesome. We wanted to thank you so much for coming in. We had such a great time interviewing you for Floater Founder. And thank you so much to our listeners. We are so excited to share more founder stories with you. Until, Until next time. time.